Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked. A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm co-host Michelle Govea, joined by co-host Chris Wells. And our special guest today is Luis DiMaduno. Luis, um, great to see you again. Luis and I go way back from uh, our time at Hartford Steam Boiler. Um, so really, really excited to have you on today. Uh, for those folks that don't know you as well as I do, um, do you want to give a brief introduction on yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, I've... Uh... Uh, had the opportunity to be in the data space now for uh, quite a few years. Uh, but prior to that, I was uh, active duty military for 12 years and then another 15 years as a reservist, retired as a full colonel. And uh, from there, I hung up that uniform and I started wearing my new uniform of the bow tie. Uh, and that's really uh, what... Uh, has been my uh, my moniker in my data space uh, since I've uh, joined the civilian side of the world. Uh, my work over the last 10 years specifically uh, has been as a chief data officer. And so I had the fortune of being the first chief data and analytics officer for AXA US, uh, a Paris-based company, uh, but uh, we uh, ran the life and annuity space out of New York City. Um, and so I was the first there for over three years. And then I uh, came to Hartford Steam Boiler, now known as HSB. And uh, I had been the first chief data and technology officer there. Uh, and that has been over the last uh, five plus years. So being in being a chief data officer, first off, uh, for anything over two years is uh, considered a pretty good success. Uh, so having the opportunity for doing it for the last 10 years, I, I think I've uh, earned some stripes there and uh, really look forward to talking to you guys about it today. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. And Fantastic. I'll just say before we get started, thank you for your service for yeah. so long. Thanks. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, Lewis, we we talk a lot on the podcast these days about um, how data, how technology, how automation play a role in especially the um, underwriting and claim space. So maybe you could start off by just giving an overview of how those things all play together. Well, uh, specifically, you know, in the insurance space, uh, we just have so much opportunity to uh, have access to data for both on the commercial and the personal side. Um, and so, you know, when the policies are written, when that information is being gathered by the agents and the brokers, uh, there's just so much opportunity to ask questions that could really help to give insight uh, from a risk and understanding of the uh, of what's being insured. Uh, on the underwriting and claim side, uh, again, here are more opportunities to collect data. So obviously, the claims at the moment of truth, when your policy is being put into uh, uh, work, essentially, uh, you have the opportunity to collect more information about you know what happened. And um, the aspects of uh, what may be caused that claim. And over time, as you collect data across a number of claims, now you have essentially a uh, an output variable that you can use as a target for all the information that you collect from the policy up front. So again, you know, 
all of this really turns into a great big math equation of, uh, you know, if I have all this information up front from an underwriting standpoint and from an understanding of the risk, maybe I can be better at predicting where claims would or could or should uh, be uh, applied and uh, really have the opportunity to utilize the math behind that to, to do that. And that's where AI and, you know, a lot of this um, uh, math that's uh, come along with uh, the capabilities that some of the AI and machine learning uh, tools that are out there now are being emphasized and really being uh, utilized uh, to get better understanding uh, around predictive and prescriptive areas. Lewis, the, the other thing that, um, and I know you and I have had conversations about this, I think, while, while we work together is um, that everything you said, um, totally agree with, that data is there. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the challenge of getting that data out and making it usable, right? And so we talk about siloed systems, or even in the case of, um, you know, from a from a reinsurer model, right? There's an extra link in that chain to try and get that information um, in to 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 run the calculation and even determine, you know, from their perspective, the payouts and things like that. How did how? Are there any differences in your experience on how you have to run a data strategy if you're at like a, I'll call it a primary insurer versus a reinsurer? Um, and just kind of the nuances there, I would love to get your take on that. Sure. Uh, and what's interesting in the insurance space in general is because you do have so many parties involved from the policyholder who has essentially all the information uh, about their uh, business or about their uh, personal uh, insurability. Uh, through the agent and broker, which collects some of that information. And then you get it into the policy admin system, which only accepts some of that information. And then as you move down towards the reinsurer, you're sharing only some of that information mm -hmm. onto them. So it's, it's kind of like a funnel of data where you start out with a, a huge amount and each step of the way, as you get into a point uh, at, at different points of the uh, of the process, you're losing data. Um, and so now the question is: Is are you ensuring that you're capturing the pertinent data that you need for your tasks in that process step, um, or are you losing data along the way that maybe could have been very beneficial to you uh, in some of the decisions that are being made by the underwriters and uh, folks uh, in the uh, uh, project or uh, new product development space. Um, and so one of the things, you know, you have to ask yourself, what is the question that you're trying to answer? And a lot of the times that's really hard because we don't know what questions to ask, yeah. uh, especially when we're building these things out for the first time. Uh, and so you've got to have a dynamic environment where you have the ability to expand that data uh, environment and, and essentially capture or collect more information as necessary to be able to address the questions that you are trying to answer. And that's probably um, I'm calling back to my own experience when when working on a on launching a new product, right? Is you don't know what when it's a brand new product in a, in a brand new product line, right? That that's generally new in insurance. So I'll call it you know cyber insurance as an, as the example that was brand new. Um, you don't know what the claims are going to be. You don't know what the real 
the real risk is that you're underwriting against. And so how do you identify, to your point, identify those questions, but also build a system that can be flexible and nimble enough to change as those data points, those insights uh, come through. But I think your point on the data funnel is really interesting. You have to ask the question is, fundamentally, is that workflow flawed in that the data is getting removed at each step? Like, is there a way that that data should just free flow? And if you don't need it, it becomes, you know, something you don't use or there, what kind of data privacy and, uh, you know, overarching guidelines you have to to have in place for that. So that's a really interesting point of the the data, the data funnel gets narrower, uh, the deeper into the, the chain you get to. Yeah, and you brought up, uh, you used, uh, I heard you use the word regulatory, you know, um, as as you come through this, uh, you know, in privacy, the challenge with a lot of this data really becomes, you know, what is it that you can use, right, to go ahead and make some of your decisions? And what what is it that you can't, right? And so, again, you've got to be very um, legal uh, understanding of, you know, what information is available? What can I use? How do I make sure that I'm not discriminating against um, the uh, the commercial or the the uh, the personal uh, uh, policy holder? Uh, and, and again, there's so many different ways that you can discriminate against them, which is really um, unfortunate. And this is where you get into the whole artificial intelligence and machine learning piece is that there are proxies out there that aren't directly aligned with, hey, I'm going to discriminate against you because of your race. Well, I don't have to go ahead and do that because maybe if I go ahead and just use a zip code, a zip code could easily go ahead and identify a lower socioeconomic environment that maybe is essentially held against that person in in the risk analysis. And so the challenge there is, again, from the biases and fairness of what we're Mm -hmm. learning and trying to do in this AI space, it's very, very important that as these models are being built, um, especially on the machine learning side, is that we do not uh, uh, incorporate any biases, even unknowingly, uh, because those biases will continue to influence the outcome um, over time. Yeah, essentially what should be a nice normal curve of distribution of who's being covered and how they're being covered, all of a sudden will start skewing to one side or another, maybe because of the biases of the programmer, okay? Uh, And again, those may be unintended. Um, And some of it could be from the data. And if the data is not properly prepared, Again, there could be biases associated with that. Um, all the way through the uh, changing of the model over time. So again, these machine learning models specifically are supposed to be learning. And so as you put more data or more claims or more underwriting aspects into it, it should be refining its outcome. And what you don't want to have happen is it to continue to refine towards a bias. Um, I, I hope that's uh, understandable the way that I explained it, but the challenge is, is really from a standpoint of you have to be able to identify the fairness uh, right up front as to how you're going to be building these models. And there's about 30 different, I think there's more than 30 out there now, different ways of mathematically defining fairness. Yeah. And so once you've got those fairness definitions out there, then you can really start to try to understand what bias is. Um, 
I, I had done some research recently and I had come up with there's well over 100 biases out there that are identifiable. And so to try to be an expert in all those areas, very, very hard. Um, and one of the things that I've been uh, touting uh, recently, I had given us a, a talk at, uh, at Iowa State um, where it was focused around this idea of, you know, the future of this area is going to be a big piece of it. it's going to be one of these things that they call the prompt engineer, yep. right, which is how do I express the question appropriately without having the biases in there? But then there's also going to be an interpreter uh, engineer or an interpreting science uh, scientist who's going to have to be able to look at the outcome and determine that, is this truthful? Right. Is there no bias associated mm. with it? You know, are is is there a hallucination associated with what's happening in my in my model? You know, or is it trying to lie, you know, more frankly, uh, or am I really getting a truthful, fair outcome? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've been in the analytics and machine learning space now for over a decade, and uh, it used to be folks would complain nonstop about machine learning being, you know, just some black box, you know, voodoo. And um, I've seen I've seen two things happen with these large language models now and the prompt engineering. One, I've seen data scientists completely forget rigor altogether, um, you know, and, and not not doing their trained test splits, you know, not thinking about it the right way. And I've also seen folks that have started to build out this skill set of um, now you have the ability to understand the black box because you can literally just directly interrogate it. And that, <laughs> that ability to take the answer to a prompt and chain it to like, show me your work, um, mm -hmm. really useful skill set and uh, really nice way of sort of shining a light inside the black box. Sure. We, sure. We've seen on, on our side, um, a lot of companies, what we're, we're like, Category like categorizing it as AI compliance is a lot of as companies now starting to come up and, and have these solutions to say we can we can monitor your models and if you add in a new variable we can determine if there's a bias being added or you know review that um, what happens if you now from a regulatory standpoint I'll bring it up again Lewis since you did if you have to remove a variable that you've used in your pricing in the past how does that alter um, you know, the underwriting that, that goes along with that and how do you reassess what, what you've already bound and, you know, moving forward into and renewal process and things like that. So this is very much an area that there's a, we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial activity in, and there's going to be a huge focus, even from the regulator side, um, we think coming down, coming down the pike over the next couple of years. Well, and I think what's interesting too, is that you're even starting to see some, uh, insurance companies starting to build a product around ensuring the models right yeah. so you know the 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 uh, uh, accuracy of the models and the and the capability of these models there's risk associated with them and so obviously if there is an opportunity to mitigate that risk or at least you know prepare for it then your insurance companies are going to you know see the opportunity and see if there's a uh, product that they can put in place there yeah that's it's fascinating um <laughs> All of these new things that you and insurance companies have to do and are doing um, brings my mind back to a question we talked about on a recent episode, which was there's this projected shortage of labor sort of top to bottom in insurance companies. And I wonder, how is that affecting you and how is that creating opportunity for you? And on the, you know, 
is it having an effect side of things? Um, are you finding sufficient, you know, talent for ML, AI, automation um, out there? Well, I, I, this is a great uh, topic uh, in, in general because, again, I think that there's a a good um, uh, population of data scientists out there. Mm-hmm. The challenge is, is are there a good population of data scientists that know about insurance and and understand the process of insurance and essentially the math behind the underwriting and the actuarial science that 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 props it up. Um, and so the the challenge becomes, okay, I've got these data scientists that I go ahead and I bring into the company. I've got to educate them on insurance, but at the same time, I want them working, you know, nose to the grindstone, figuring out some of my problems mathematically to determine, you know, hey, is there a product here or is there a profitability opportunity or can I go ahead and bring something to market that my customers are really interested in? And and the challenge there becomes, you know, in each one of these companies, there's been, I, I will say, you know, some companies have embraced it whole hard, uh, you know, whole hog. And, you know, they've got hundreds of data scientists within their organization. Other companies got two. Okay, <laughs> and and the challenge then becomes, and this is where you know I think opportunities of things like um, you know ChatGPT and some of these other uh, capabilities that can help code, right? Um, you get into this area of low code, no code space where someone who doesn't necessarily have to be a data scientist or a coder but they can go ahead and they can do preliminary hypothesis testing around data that they're familiar with. So you go ahead and you take a claims professional who's been with the company for 20 plus years. They've been collecting all this data for all this time. And now they've got a question, you know, hey, I think uh, I'm seeing a trend or, hey, I think there's an opportunity around, you know, age of roof uh, in a certain zip code or a certain, you know, uh, county area. And so they go ahead and they can start to, you know, use some of the low code, no code capability. And again, there are some companies that have really specialized in that space, so like a H2O or a data robot. You know, those folks out there, they really have, have done a really good job around the GUI interface and being able to create an environment for someone who's not a programmer to be able to access data and to start asking questions. Here's where I think the opportunity is, though, in the insurance space, where maybe if you don't have a large investment in your data scientists or you don't have data scientists who are very insurance savvy, is that you've got a underwriter or you've got a claims professional who can utilize these low-code, no-code environments, come up with some hypothesis, you know, ring it out a little bit to say, hey, I think there's a there there. Now you go ahead and you turn it over to your data scientist and you have them put the appropriate rigor behind the, you know, hey, do I did I have biased data? Hey, am I really focused on, you know, the right type of coding uh, to make this a robust model that incorporates all the um, all the data elements that I needed into it? And then also get to the point where you can operationalize it, because that's really the last five yards is, you know, e- even if you've got a, a, a claims professional who comes up with a great idea and can program it all, they can't put it into a environment where it's going to be robust enough where maybe a external organization can bounce up against it uh, with a question. It's got to be put through an ML ops ringer 
so that, again, you've got good controls around it. The IT organization is fully bought into it. You've got the privacy. You've got the security associated with it. All that has to happen. And so, again, I see this low-code, no-code environment opportunity of utilizing insurance professionals to really start to ask the questions themselves. And then as they come up with, you know, oh, there is a there there, they can turn it over to the appropriate and it gets prioritized and, and put the through the ringer. So uh, I really see an opportunity there. And again, I, I, I think that this opportunity for your insurance professionals to become more statistically savvy as they're asking these questions to see that there's lift associated with what they're bringing together, it really becomes more of a opportunity to uh, make sure that the appropriate work is getting to your high value data scientists or your low volume data scientists um, and, and, uh, and be able to ring it out. So I, we've been promised low code, no code before <laughs> RPA was supposed to be that. And it didn't, yeah. didn't happen. Um, because it turns out you have to be able to think like a programmer to be effective. Even if you, if you, even if you don't have to program, you have to think like a programmer. So I worry about, I'm excited about what you're talking about, but I also worry about it in the sense that when I've worked with very junior data people, you know, fresh out of a master's program, something like that, you unleash them with tools, things that they can help, you know, make those tools scale you tend to get a lot of what I would describe as very Baroque models, like overly complicated, overly heavy. Um, how do you how do you prevent that? Right. It's, it's the same analogy. It's like you're not a data scientist, but you need to be able to think like a data scientist to do the job, even if you don't have to do some of the sausage making in between. Yeah. So, again, I'm I'm not a advocate of just uh, opening the box and uh, giving it to everyone and say, you know, run, run amok with it. Yeah. Um, there definitely needs to be training uh, and, and there definitely needs to be. I, 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 I can't emphasize this enough. You know, as you change an organization to go from, you know, hey, this is how we've done work forever. Right. To, hey, now we're going to give you a new tool. And by the way, this is how we want you to use the tool. It's that uh, turning the, the culture of the organization, you know, to go from a culture of, you know, hey, I'm going to serve the client and I'm going to be the best, you know, a client deliverer there is on, you know, in, in the organization to all of a sudden having this curiosity of, you know, hey, is there an opportunity for me to do this better? Or is there an opportunity for us to ensure that we've got, you know, the right risk profile on the on the um, uh, um, policyholders that we're bringing uh, to bear here? Um, you know, the the one thing that you guys had mentioned, or, or, or uh, Michelle had mentioned a moment ago, uh, using cyber as a uh, example. Okay, you know, the typical way that most uh, uh, products you know, are really focused, especially on the commercial side is, tell me what industry you're in, tell me where your organization is, you know, tell me, you know, how many employees you got. And from all that information, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to write you a cyber, a cyber product. And it's going to protect you against, you know, uh, you know, ransomware, it's going to protect you against denial of service, it's going to protect you against lost wages, it's, you know, it's going to do all these great things. And so, uh, again, initially, we went into this with the aspect of, well, we'll just collect the stuff that these companies normally give us. 
And now all of a sudden you start getting claims and the claims are, well, they penetrated because, uh, you know, we had uh, one of our uh, uh, ports, you know, was was open or we didn't update our Java recently or, you know, it was all these technical aspects that we knew nothing about from a risk standpoint because it was never collected. Right. And even, you know, at the carrier level or even at the reinsurer level, you're not that close to the company to really understand their IT system, their IT environment, maybe their IT organization. Even if I knew that a company had a CISO or if they had a, you know, a professional CIO, you know, then all of a sudden I can think that, oh, well, maybe, you know, if I if I know that they have that, then I can also make the assumption that. They're better at, you know, their environmental structure. They're better at managing upgrades and having the most current uh, product, uh, you know, um, uh, software uh, versions. All this other information that would have let me know from a risk standpoint that, you know what, on the cyber side, these guys got it covered, right? But if I go ahead and I, you know, uh, sign up a, a, a local pizza shop, Right. And they want cyber coverage. And now all of a sudden I find out that the person who's in charge of, you know, all their IT of uh, taking orders and everything is the guy who's also, you know, mixing the sauce in the back room. Right. (laughs) Now now all of a sudden I'm going to start asking myself questions that, hey, should I be pricing them the same way as someone who has a professional IT organization? So, uh, again, you know, as as we learn more about. Uh, these products and where the claims are coming from and what they're being attributed to, it asks, you know, makes the insurance company ask more questions from a standpoint of, you know, am I collecting the right information for this specific product and and, and am I pricing it appropriately? Yeah, it's like writing a life policy without knowing a blood pressure, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Louis, going back to, so I, whenever I think about no code, low code, I always think about it from just in my experiences, you know, from a policy administration workflow perspective, right? Even less so about get, getting into the modeling and things like that. Um, and I think generally speaking, there are certain workflows or maybe even certain product lines that lend themselves more easily now to to those capabilities as, a, you know, less less complex or um, you know, more frequency of of underwriting or even claims. Um, how do you think about that? Are there do you think there are certain product lines or certain um, uh, capabilities that that are are ready to execute now versus somewhere down the line where we have to do x, y, z to to get there so that low code no code is truly effective? Well, uh, again, I think that there's a big uh, aspect of, you know, the culture of the organization and the adoption of being able to, one, give people access to the data, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's that whole aspect of, you know, um, in the past, and again, because of security and privacy issues, you know, once data goes into the admin system, it stays in the admin system, and and you only get reports at a very high or a segmentation level that, you know, doesn't give you the insight that maybe, hey, there's a specific carrier in a specific location that is influencing, you know, claims within a specific product line. And and you may not be able to see that unless you have that capability of being able to really narrow down into those areas. 
And so, you know, I think that a lot of organizations in the past, you know, and even more recently, you know, we're using better visualization tools so that we can start to see where there's opportunity or where maybe there's pockets of influence that are um, uh, contributing to losses or, um, uh, you know, where claims are coming from. And, and and there are some really good visualization tools out there now that literally you can do some uh, natural language processing with where you can either talk to them or you can type in your question and it will come back. And not only will it come back with an answer, but it will also come back with the analysis of what influenced that answer, uh, which, again, mm-hmm. gives you the opportunity to dig down deeper and deeper as to, you know, why, why did that happen? Um, and, and there's there's opportunities there. So, you know, when we talk about low code, no code, again, there's the programming side of it, of creating, you know, Python uh, script that's really uh, reusable and, and capable of running against very, very large data sets. But I'm even talking, you know, this low code, no code is even, you know, this area or this capability within reporting where you can go ahead and you can open up uh, an opportunity to a group to say, you know, hey, here's your profitability and it's changed over time. And you can see that there's potentially a trend over time. Now you can start asking the questions, why, what influenced that trend? You know, why is it going up? Why is it going down? Why is it seasonal? Right. And uh, you'll quickly find that there's quite a few even reporting tools out there that can help you dig into that to start to prove out some hypotheses. I want to I want to bring that back to intake again. One of the things that I've seen over and over again is that as processes become sort of augmented by technology or partially automated by technology, one of the things you find happening is. Well, one, everyone's job gets better and the team scales better. But a knock-on effect downstream is that you have much cleaner data that's now flowing into and throughout the organization. So are you seeing those knock-on effects from like AI-powered intake solutions or or do you think it's still early days? So uh, unfortunately, the what I've seen from an AI-powered intake solution has not lived up to the, to the billing. Um, and so... I've I've worked with a number of companies specifically around uh, wanting to emphasize AI uh, intake, and what I'm continually seeing is it's being uh, purpose built within organizations as opposed to having out of the box capability. And um, again, a lot of that still has to go with you know how are companies collecting information how you know uh flexible is their policy admin system that these this data is going into um once it's in these policy admin systems does it continue to live there or do i have to and do i clean it there or do i have to lift it out of there and bring it through some sort of governance process to ensure that i've got you know high quality um high highly accurate um, you know, augmented uh, information that I can then send down uh, my analysis and data science path. Uh, it's very hard for most organizations to be able to lift information directly from their policy admin systems and, you know, go go direct to 
um, uh, decision making or data science with it. There tends to be a you know a step in there where I've got to do some data management. Maybe I've got to go through a mastering aspect uh, to bring together you know the same uh, customer across many different product lines. Uh, to be able to understand that, to see the claims coming in from different product lines and be able to bring that all together so I have a master view of that customer uh, or that location for that matter. Um, there's there's many different aspects of, of bringing that together. And again, I haven't seen a lot on the policy admin side. Um, you know, To me, what I've seen most recently in policy admin is the movement to the cloud. All right, they're going to go ahead and they're going to, you know, make everything a software as a service. And, and that's good from a, a software standpoint, because again, I'm going to have the, the latest and greatest version. I'm not going to have to worry about having to do those kinds of upgrades. Uh, the, the vendor is going to take care of all that for me. Um, and, and that way, you know, it can, can continue to uh, reap the benefits of new uh, capabilities that are coming out of them. But but I haven't seen the one the the AI aspect of uh, integration or, or acquisition of the data to really help, and then the mastering of the data itself hasn't been a priority for for the policy admin folks. It again, it's either a CRM initiative that's outside of that, or it's a mastering effort that's through another new another product. So it sounds like you're saying there's there's potential for like an AI powered intake system to yeah. build a cleaner data set, but you're sort of a few levels obscured from actually. And and, and most organizations are talking about AI yep. capability in their in, in their data um, uh, uh, acquisition. Yep. I just haven't seen it be a smooth process yet. It's still, you know, kind of company built um there's still a lot of sequel in there there's still a lot of you know uh stuff that uh you know uh, again it's going to take an it organization to run it as yep. opposed to you know hey here i am the claims person i've got a great idea i want to bring in some uh data from a third-party provider like an Experian or a dun and bradstreet and so they send me a data set now i've got to integrate it Hey, Mr. IT, can you help me? You know, yeah. or hey, data engineer, can you help me? All right. It's it's not that easy, smooth. Hey, I'm just gonna drop it and I'm gonna go ahead and and see it pick the fields that it should be matching against, which is what I would expect an AI uh acquisition capability to to really be able to exercise against. Interesting. It's a great answer. Very cool. I do. I do have these grand ideas or these grand visions of how it's all going to work in the future. Um, and uh, I keep pushing that, uh, you know, we'll get there someday. But uh, it still hasn't. I, you know, I, the, the one thing that I, I talked to a team about recently, I make it as easy as I want to see a Pizza Hut tracker. OK, <laughs> I want I want to see when the phone call came in. I want to see what you ordered. I want to see, you know, the pizza being made. I want to know when it's going to show up at my doorstep and when I got to meet you there and all the, you know, uh, uh, all, all the, uh, you know, uh, money exchanged behind the scenes. You know, it's just a matter of I called. I can see when my pizza is going to get here and I'll meet you at the door. And all these other things are happening behind the scenes. 
Um, and I can at any time I can kind of look to see what's happening behind the scenes. You know, did they put the pepperoni only on half? Right. You know, all all these pieces of the equation. I I, I always uh, take it back to that. And I, I, I've I've always been enamored from the idea that, you know, when Pizza Hut first came out with that whole idea, I was like, this is it. You know, this is process visualization of my, you know, my wants being fulfilled. Uh, and here's here it is that, you know, I can see it at a moment's notice with what's going on. I want to be able to see that with data. And, and and essentially from data coming through the front door all the way through being prepared and ready for the data scientists and what they're doing with it. It's funny, Michelle and I just had literally this exact conversation. Yeah. So really? <laughs> another also food service related. I think Chris mentioned the DoorDash model. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a Domino's man. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. And and Lewis, you're talking about all like obviously all everything that you you just talked about takes a massive amount of effort. And that's just starting fresh, right? So when you layer on the fact that there are within these big insurance companies large legacy systems or just multiple systems where you have to try and tie that together, that's I think where you saw the this emergence of we need a new data warehouse or where's the data lake model that we can pull from. And even that comes with all of its challenges of, um, again, are you querying for the right information, right? Like there, there's a, an example that, that we like to use as a team internally of you can ask five different people in insurance care, how much did we do in gross written premium last year? And you'll get five different answers, right? And that's because where's the source data coming from? What manipulations have been done to that data just based on you know the needs of of your business unit over time, and so to your point of being able to see behind the scenes of not only where is my pizza in the process, but but who is making that pizza, right? Who has yeah. touched? Who who is responsible for of that? Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. Um, I think that's that's something that uh, even companies that we talk to that say we can integrate with your data, or we can integrate with your systems, miss how complex some of those things are and why it's so challenging to sometimes the best solution fails because the underlying structure just isn't, isn't ready for it. Um, yeah, I, I you're, you're, touch, you're touching on a third rail topic, actually, Michelle, yeah. uh, because again, you, you're, you're talking about data lineage. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, if I, if I'm using data in my model, where did it come from? Okay. Mm -hmm. And so now the question is, let's take it one step further in the chat GPT realm. Okay. And now all of a sudden somebody has a privacy question, right? Or something to the effect of, you know, hey, how did you get my information? Now all of a sudden I've got to go ahead and I've got to track that back through to really understand. And from a regulatory standpoint, all of this privacy stuff associated with chat GPT and these models that are being built is, is going is, is about to become a really, really big issue. Um, so there's the AI Bill of Rights that uh, the US put out in December uh, from the Biden administration that essentially tells you all the things you can't do or that you, let me put it this way, that you shouldn't do with, uh, with AI models and the data that's available. <laughs> uh, 
the EU has followed on with their GDPR, and now they've got an initiative around, you know, hey, how are we going to go ahead and ensure that the data that's being used to build these models is not privacy-based? So again, are you going to go ahead and take all of social media out of the models that are being built that are going to support the EU, right? Because again, now you've got all those challenges associated with it. And that's that's a big thing in Europe in particular, is that they're very big on, you know, hey, you can't track people, you can't listen to people, you can't do facial recognition in, in the EU, right? Um, that's, a, that's a big no-no uh, over there right now. Um, and then you go to the UK, right? And the UK is separate from the EU now, but their um, their um, most recent declaration, I'll call it, from Parliament was they want to be an AI global superpower, right? So uh, again, when you go ahead and you look at each one of these organizations, mind you, I, I haven't looked to see what uh, you know China or Russia have really put in writing. There's there's not much in writing around regular regulation or what they can and can't do in that space yet. But um, specifically of the areas that I just mentioned of the US, the UK and the EU, they're all trying to kind of get out in front of this issue of, you know, hey, these chat GPT or these, you know, uh, gener uh, you know, uh, uh, generative AI uh, capabilities have to have some sort of guideline. They have to have some sort of uh, controls or guidance or, or regulations around them to really help organizations understand what they can and can't trust of what's coming out of them. Because you go ahead and you look at ChatGPT, ChatGPT was trained on over, they say it was upwards of almost a third of the existing internet. All right. Well, you go ahead and you look at the internet and I don't know that I want to trust you know, Wikipedia being changed every other day, right? Or what gets put out on Parler or uh, Truth or any of these other social networks that maybe have a, a skew to them. And now all of a sudden you go ahead and you see that, you know, ChatGPT doesn't have a lot of guidance to say what it can and can't say. Uh, and now all of a sudden things come out that are potentially not truthful. Well, yeah, now uh, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle, right? Because yeah. you, yeah. you're going to have medium full of chat GPT articles. So chat GPT five is worse, right? Yep. It's a big problem. Yeah, it's oh, uh, it's amazing. And and, this, and the, 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 the real amazing thing about this stuff is that, you know, when we were first handed, you know, these these cell phones, you know, uh, a few years back, um, you know, a couple people had them initially and then, you know, or, you know, or people start out with Blackberries or, or Palm Pilots or, or whatever it is. But, but again, you know, the, the guidance around the uptake of that technology was such that, you know, it took a few years before everybody got one in their hand and, and got to the point where they were smartphones and to the point where they are with the uh, processing capability that they have now is, is pretty phenomenal. But it took years for us to get there. This GPT was unleashed in November. And already, you know, we're into another version of it, right? We've gone from ChatGPT to GPT-4, and the capability just between those two is exponential. And, and we're just moving at such a fast rate that if we don't get some controls and some regulations around what you can and can't do with this stuff, we're going to get into a, a significant issue where we're, we've painted ourselves into a corner and we can't get out.
this is a whole other episode. And <laughs> Sorry. Maybe we should have you back because yeah. I can't think of a lot of examples where regulation actually fixed the problems it was meant yeah. to with technology. Yeah. So, well, our, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar, you know, Elon Musk uh, last week, two weeks ago, he came out with this uh, uh, open letter, uh, you yeah, know, that essentially a said test, test ban yeah. treaty. Yeah, it said stop for six months. Well, who the hell is gonna, you know, maybe we maybe we could get the US or maybe we could get the EU, but you know, there are other countries that are just completely running rampant with this stuff that there's no way they're gonna stop. They they're gonna see it as a an opportunity to either catch up or pass, um, you know, during that time frame. That letter was so naive. It, yeah. it's just silly. Um, yeah. taking shots at you, Elon. Uh <laughs> So again, we should come back to the regulatory <laughs> aspect because you know insurance yeah. we talk about a lot. It's uh, and highly regulated, right? So it really matters. And i i want to I want to bring it back to insurance specifically um, right here to ask you, like, with all of the um, AI capabilities insurers already have and they're trying to build, what do you think the biggest dangers are if we don't get this figure? We'll talk about how to actually regulate it later. But how do what are, what's the biggest danger if if we don't get guardrails in place? I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for companies to put to essentially build their own insular uh, GPT, okay, um, where they can be uh, taking advantage of their own proprietary information and and building it out into an environment where you can have a very intelligent bot be expert on you know, many things about your company. Uh, I, I think an area that is very highly automated opportunity, and I, I don't mean to disparage anyone in, in this regard, but in the legal space, mm -hmm. right, there's an opportunity to really ingest a lot of what regulates the, uh, the um, you know, the industry and then you go ahead and you take on the decisions that have been made within your organization from a legal standpoint. And this extends into the data privacy space uh, as well. But you go ahead and you take all that and you layer it in. Now, all of a sudden, you've got an opportunity to have an interactive bot that can talk to you specifically around, you know, uh, legal aspects, you know, vendor contracts. Uh, you know, things that you can and can't do or that you shouldn't do in the name of the company. You know, all these things essentially um, that you can get at a moment's notice, you know, through a, uh, a Google type interface where you don't have to wait for, you know, legal representation to be available to ask the question and for them to do the research on it. It would be essentially instantaneously available. So so I do see, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, the challenge, though, in that regard is, and I don't know if you saw what happened with Samsung last week, but essentially Samsung tried to do something similar to that, but somebody, instead of keeping it within the confines of the company, loaded it to actual chat GPT, and the next thing you know, it's worldwide. And so, you know, proprietary Samsung information is available to everyone. Um so, so again, we just need to be really careful about how we go forward with this and be purposeful around what it is that we're trying to address and accomplish. Uh, I really think that there's a lot of opportunity, and and you know, don't don't even get me started on uh, you know going down the path of quantum computing involved with that. You know, you were very quickly going to get to a point where 
there's not going to be a lot of what stuff left for us to do. Um, you know, they'll be really good at even coming up with new ideas around, you know, potential products um, based on, you know, what's happening in the environment. Yeah. Um, so, uh, again, there's there's lots of uh, lots of uh, opportunity and lots of changes, I think, uh, are potentially coming down the, the, the path. I do think that we've got you know, challenges within our own organizations to understand what's happening. I think we've got even bigger challenges in that we've got legislatures and and political bodies that aren't um, aren't smart on this stuff, right? And they are going to be doing some knee jerk reactions. You know, almost everything. Uh, I'll, I'll take you back to the the comment I had made about this uh, AI Bill of Rights uh, that uh, the Biden administration put out there. Almost every other sentence in it mentions the word bias. Okay. And so again, somebody somebody clued into that when you know when they were writing it down and building it out and saying, well, you know, this is going to be discriminatory and all these bad things are going to happen to all of our constituents. Uh, and so there was a focus on that, right? And so again, my hope is that there'll be more education, there'll be more opportunity for people to understand and learn a little bit more around how this works. Hopefully they don't get all their information from uh, Chat GPT or GPT four, right? <laughs> or 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 will end up with a Skynet type situation. <laughs> but uh, but again, I I think that uh, there's really good opportunity to uh, to utilize this in in how we are uh, how we're building out the insurance uh, uh, products and and opportunities there. Yeah, it's early, early days in the sense of there's there's still a lot of, of versioning and things to come. But to your point, lots of challenges, but a lot of great opportunity too if, it, if it's yeah. done right. Um, yeah. This has been fantastic. You've given us a lot to, to think about. There's probably three or four other episodes that we could oh, yeah. could do just from from what we talked about today. So, um, you know, would love to to maybe have you back and, and chat through some of those other ones. I think Chris is, is dying to do it on just the regulatory landscape. So. <laughs> to do that too. What's more um, exciting than that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I there was one thing that we had started down the path of, and again, I, I'm sorry to get distracted with some of the, the 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 most current news. But one of the reasons why CDOs only last for two years is because the value and the benefits aren't able to be extracted quickly when you look at it from a strategic view versus a tactical view. And so again, I think a lot of organizations, a lot of CDOs, companies, they they see that they've got data in all these different environments. They know that there's value if they can bring them together. They've got data scientists on the side over here screaming for data to come through in a high quality nature. And so, you know, the the frustration or the lack of value creation in those first couple of years becomes a challenge for a lot of CDOs and so they essentially either find their own door or find another place in the company or or go on uh, to greener pastures. What what I've found, though, for myself, uh, and, and this is what really has been, I think, beneficial and, and other CDOs can learn from my mistakes is having that overarching strategic view of how are we going to bring all of the data together is one aspect. And again, you know, maybe you've got a long-term view and a and a long-term investment associated with how you do that. But you've got to be able to tactically bring this data together 
to address individual questions that are high priority, that are high value, and be able to do that in high enough quality. It doesn't have to be perfect. In high enough quality so that you've got some level of confidence in what's coming out and you're able to do that in a short, you know, uh, window of time, maybe a quarter, six months. You know, those are the kinds of focuses that you need to do if you want to survive as a CDO. You got to be able to create those value propositions uh, on that tactical level in, the, in that short term. And again, it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be good enough. It has to be enough data so that they can come up with a good idea or a good decision around it and that they can go ahead and move forward with it. Like I said, there's always going to be this opportunity to kind of boil the ocean and make the big investment for, you know, the, the wider data gamut that's going to be more around automation. It's going to be more around, you know, new technologies associated with bringing it together, maybe a new data warehouse. But in the meantime, there's got to be that effort of got to, you know, do these smaller initiatives to create value and to create, uh, to show the promise of the data going forward. Sage advice to all the uh, CDOs out there, not just in insurance, but specifically in insurance where there's really, I think we're at the beginning of a hockey stick in terms of what's going to be done with and around data. Um, also, I'm thinking now that we should teach junior math or uh, junior statisticians the Pareto distribution before we <laughs> that 80-20 is yeah, yeah, much more yeah. useful. Um, well, anyway, this has been another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. My co-host, as usual, is Michelle Govea. And today we've had the pleasure of being joined by Luis DiMaduno, the Bowtie Data Guy. Luis, really great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and insights. Thanks for, Thanks having for joining me. us, Luis. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.